page 36. So we were in the middle of talking about the idea that the philosophers have brought up, which is how do we know that anything is really real? Anything is really true, right? Anything which is by definition outside of ourselves, it can be very hard to really say, maybe everything is fake. Maybe everything's really just a construct. Maybe we're all living in the matrix, right? So what he described up until now is that Hashem has created the world and given us this ability to perceive things, right? And that perception then becomes somewhat of a glimpse of reality, okay? So we're actually right at the top of page 37, the second line. This fraction of the truth is also true and, it, and is as much of the truth of the real nature of things as he needs to know for the accomplishment of his mission on earth and that he may safely have confidence in it. Thus, belief in God who created men and things forms an essential foundation also to our theoretical knowledge. Without this belief, theoretical scientific knowledge cannot escape hopeless skepticism, has no guarantee that it is not deducing a dream from a dream and proving a dream by a dream. What does he mean by this? What he means is that science is based on a set of, of axioms, right? Everything, any discipline at all is always going to be based on a set of basic rules or axioms, right? Now, those rules or axioms, those assumptions, they're based on an intuition. They're based on some sort of feeling that in, within this discipline, this is how it's going to work. This will make it make sense. But maybe that's all based on a scam, right? Maybe everything is just made up, right? So there are certain things that we have to take for granted in life, right? God has given us the ability to recognize that the certain things that we feel to be true have a, an objective truth about them. Because without that, we wouldn't be able to go any further. This point has also been stressed by other thinkers who have pointed out that science makes a number of philosophical assumptions, namely, notably, the orderliness of natural processes and their economical functioning, which can be justified only by belief in a God who designed them. It's an interesting point. And essentially what he's saying is, is that the idea that natural processes are, are, um, are all set up in the most efficient fashion, right? That idea would have to be based on the sense that there would be a, an intelligent design, right? A, a creator of the universe. It is man's ability to attain knowledge about the world that enables him to see in it the work of God's creating and ordering hand and thereby to come to a perception of his existence and rulership over the world, right? So when, when people say, um, what, how can, can, how can you define God, right? So the Rambam would tell you, the first thing to understand is that the way to define God is perhaps to define what God isn't, right? That's something that we could say. But to say what God is, that's gonna be very difficult to really get to any sort of true understanding of God's nature. What we can do is look at the world that he created and through that, get a sense, get a glimpse into what exactly the, the true essence of God is. Happens to me this week, I, I went to a, a Shiva call and the fellow who I was, um, you know, being Menachem Avel, he is a, um, he was trained as a, not a theoretical, um, um, fundamental physicist, I think it's called, or um, there's a word for it. Um, like the, the most basic principles in physics, right? That's what his, his PhD is in. And he, he became religious later in life. And I said to him, you know, can I ask you what, what was it that put you on this path to, to religion? And he said, you know, you, you could make that question even stronger. You could say that as a physicist, right? And physicists are by far 
like the, the greatest proportion of them are atheists, right? Because they believe that they can explain everything. And he said, so you could ask that question, even make it stronger. How could I possibly believe in God when I'm a physicist and I, I can understand all of the rational uh, processes of the, of the world? So he said, he said, you know, what they always used to say is that the reason why people believe in God is because it's called the God of the gaps, right? Which means the gaps in our knowledge and understanding of the natural world that's why we believe in God, to fill in those gaps, right? So now we, we can't explain that. Okay, that's that's where God exists. So, so now people will tell you, it's very hard to find that gap. We understand almost everything about the world, right? So therefore, there's no more gaps left for God to exist when we look at the natural world and, and the creation of the world and, and, and all the creations in the world. So you said, I would tell you that it's actually the opposite. We understand everything, but we have not had any breakthroughs in the last 30 years at all. And we still have one fantastic, unsolvable problem. And science itself will tell you it's unsolvable. And that's how did the world come into creation, right? All of these processes and all the natural steps, we can use inductive reasoning to look back in time. But there becomes a point in time, there's an artificial sort of barrier beyond which we, we cannot peer back into time using the best inductive reasoning. And any sort of mathematical equation, nothing can bring us back to a point before creation, right? She said, for me, that was the biggest proof of all that God exists. The fact that there is always going to be a wall beyond which we cannot go any further, right? So to him, at least, that itself was the recognition of a perception of Hashem's existence and rulership over the world came from the deeper his understanding into the physical world. That's exactly where he came to this recognition and understanding that Hashem is indeed the creator of the world. The fact that God himself is hidden behind his creation, so to speak, and can be perceived only through his actions is reiterated in many different ways in Jewish thought. For example, the special Yotzer composition for the morning prayers of the first day of Rosh Hashanah speaks of the king clothed in 10 garments. The 10 garments represent the 10 Sfirot, the modes of action by which God administers his world. This is uh, some basic Kabbalah, right? Some basic Kabbalah, the way that God's Influence is able to be affecting the world. The, the God is a, is somewhat outside of the world, but his influence is able to come to the world through these spheros, through these different spheres, one by one, filtering down to the world. It, in our prayers, we talk about God being clothed in 10 garments. What we mean to say is that the essence of God is hidden from us by the 10 layers of clothing that he is wearing, so to speak, right? And those 10 layers of clothing represent the fact that there are 10 different spaces in between where Hashem is and how he affects the world, right? So it's very difficult to really get any sort of sense of God other than through looking at the creations. Thus, although Rabbi Shamshan Rafael Hirsch uses Kantian terminology, his approach is drawn from traditional Jewish thought. Later in this letter, Rabbi Shamshan Rafael Hirsch refers to God's withdrawing behind his creation while continuing to guide it in its path. He explains, that even though Moshe Rabbeinu was granted, Moses, right, was granted the highest form of understanding possible for man, still, it could only be an understanding of the ways of God in the uniformity of their diversity, right? In other words, in finding the, the underlying uh, unifying principle, that's where we could find God. But you're never going to get an understanding of God in a very direct fashion. That's impossible. We can know God only through his ways. Thus, Rabbi Shamshan Paul Hirsch explains, Exodus 20, 21, to mean, where I come to bless you, I will have my name remembered, rather than in the usual manner, where I will have my name remembered, I will come to bless you. In other words, he's just explaining this a little bit of a nuanced point. 
he's translating a phrase in Hebrew. And traditionally, people would translate that as, in the place where God's name is remembered, he will then come to bless you. Rabbi Hirsch says, no, that's not how you should read it. You should read it as, where Hashem blesses you, that's where his name is remembered. In other words, in the name is only remembered through the ways in which he interact, God interacts with the world, right? Through things in which we see God's presence in the world, not in a direct way, but in a very concealed way. That's the closest that we can get to a comprehension of God. Yet while our experience of God's ways and our perception of design, order, and purpose in the world around us do point to the existence of a creator, they do not prove it to him who refuses to accept it, right? If someone's going to ask, can you empirically prove God's existence? The answer is going to be no. And that's baked into the creation of the world that God does not want his existence to be something that is provable, something that is tangible, does not want it to be on that level because that would be lead to a chasarin, a a lack in our free will. Because if it was too obvious that God created the world and God is still running the world, we wouldn't have free will. Of course, we would listen to God. We don't have any choice. We recognize God's presence. Okay, so we're finishing for, for the week. I'm going to be starting a new class next, um, starting next Friday morning. I'm going to start a new class on Friday mornings from 9.30 to 10.15. I, I know that's not the best time for everyone, but it's um, uh, one of my last remaining um, three slots. It's going to be a class on tefillah, on Jewish prayer. It's going to be, you know, to the basics, to, to explain, you know, we open up a siddur and you, you go to synagogue and there's so much in there that makes, I don't even know what this is. I, why did the rabbi say we should say this? What's the purpose of saying this? What do these words mean? Like, what, what are we doing over here, right? We're just moving our lips sometimes and it's it becomes very meaningless, right? So what, what we're going to try to do is try to go through the prayer service, starting from the moda ani, the thank you Hashem that we say in the morning, and try to really get a little bit of a deeper understanding, both of what the words mean and both of what the purpose of that prayer was, who the author of that prayer was, and get